Good morning, LifePoint Church. My name is Mark Martin. I am an elder here at LifePoint, and I am also on the faculty at UMBC in the Department of Chemical, Biochemical, and Environmental Engineering. And I'm glad to be here, and I'm glad that you're here, because we're continuing our sermon series on Colossians. This is part three of seven. And uh, the idea behind the entire series is that it's easy to lose sight of what matters. It's easy for sometimes for the truth to get muddied or blurry. And so it's hoped that we must never lose our sight of one simple truth. And this is really the series title, It's All About Jesus. It's all about Jesus. That's what we're talking about. So uh, if you were here the last two weeks, you had the honor and privilege of hearing our lead pastor, our... uh, our leader, Joe Duke, talked about the first chapter of Colossians. We talked about the fact that uh, Paul's praying for the Colossians. He's encouraging them. And a lot of emphasis on this idea of the supremacy of Christ. It's all about Jesus. Uh, he used the word preeminence. In the dictionary, preeminence is defined as paramount or of highest importance. Uh, he talked about Paul's struggles. And also the fact that Paul is really challenging the Colossians in thinking about false teaching and some heresy. And that brings us to our title for today. I titled uh, today, uh, Look Out and Look Up. Look out, like if you were at a construction site and somebody dropped a hammer, you'd yell, look out! You know, or if you were at the park, walking along and your friend, you're about to step in some dog, and the friend said, look out! (laughs) Be careful! Be careful! And look up, because it's all about Jesus. Look up to him. Look up to him. So, so my title brings us to our first passage this morning. Uh, we're going through Colossians 2, 1 through 10. If you want to read along with me, uh, we're just going to read a few verses at a time here. So verse 1, I want you to know how much I'm struggling, struggling for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not met me personally. So we learn here that Paul is struggling. Uh, he talks about the people at Colossae and Laodicea. These are two cities not far away from each other in the Lycus Valley. He's struggling. What does that mean? Well, he's in prison, but he's struggling in prayer for these people. It's also interesting that he says he hasn't met them personally. So he knows about them, but he hasn't really interacted with them personally. It goes on in verse 2 to say, My goal is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love, so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding, in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So verse 2 begins with, my goal. Now this is in the New International Version, uh, but in the Greek, it's not there. It just says, I'm struggling for you that you may be encouraged. But I think this translation, and others as well, have done a good job. Sometimes it says, my purpose or my goal, in capturing the essence or the idea that Paul's communicating here. He has a goal for these folks that he hasn't met as he prays for them. So what's his goal? His goal is encouragement and united in love. But let me kind of step outside of that a little bit and suggest that Paul's goal is that the people in Colossae experience spiritual transformation. Spiritual transformation, what is that? That's becoming a person that looks like Christ. Here at LifePoint, we talk about Christ-like influencers, people that exhibit easily, naturally, without effort, things and attributes and characters that look like Christ. That's Paul's goal. And he talks here specifically about encouragement. 
uh, I want to take a little step aside here and talk a little bit about how we accomplish that goal of spiritual transformation. I suggest to you that one of the very best ways that transformation could happen in your life is through your involvement in a small group. Through your involvement in a small group. Do me a favor, raise your hand if you are currently involved in a small group that talks about life with God or about the Bible, or about those kind of things. That's great. So a lot of people are raising their hands. I'm involved with a number of small groups. I'm involved with the elders. We meet on Tuesday nights, every uh, second and fourth Tuesday of the week, of the month. And uh, I'm involved with a community group as well. So a number of years ago, uh, in community group, we had an experience where we talked about this idea of encouragement. And I guess what I want to communicate is that in a small group, you can flesh things out that you can't do on Sunday morning. You know, lecture, is said, is the worst form of teaching. Really, it's about interactive experience that leads to life change. And so you can do that in a small group. We were talking about encouragement. And questions came up with, well, how do you encourage someone actually? What are the things that you could say? What does it look like when you encourage someone? What should you do when someone tries to encourage you? And what's the difference between encouragement and flattery? You can flesh all these ideas out in a small group. There are important things to think about. At the time, I had a very good friend who was in his early 40s and was just been diagnosed with Parkinson's disease, a strong believer. How on earth can I encourage him in the midst of that? These are things that we talked about in our small group. Uh, I also shared this, this is a number of years ago, shared this story. Um, so I had missed church uh, uh, at the time and uh, was listening at that time on a CD in my car driving to work. And I heard Joe Duke uh, talk about this guy who had encouraged him and how great the experience was and so forth. And he was talking about this guy. And I thought to myself, I think that's me. <laughs> and uh, so I called Joe and uh, I said, hey, Joe, how you doing? No, sorry, I missed church. I was out of town, but I listened to the CD. And you were talking about this guy during the service. And he goes, yeah, that's you. <laughs> I said, thanks. It's really great. Um, thank you for saying that. We talked, we hung up, and I uh, kept driving. I listened to that same section of the tape about seven more times on the way to work. <laughs> we are all desperately in need of encouragement. And the point here is that spiritual transformation, the difference in our lives, happens as we engage with others in meaningful ways, oftentimes through a small group. I also want to take a step aside and talk about starting point. Now, we talked about foundations a minute ago. Foundations is a class where you can learn about the foundational truths of Christianity. So if you're relatively new to the faith and you want a sound basis for that faith, I would encourage you to consider signing up for the foundations class. It's going to start very soon. We have a class. We only have two classes at LifePoint Church. The other before that is starting point. So starting point is for seekers, those who are seeking information to understand what's involved with the relationship with Christ. Starters, those who are just starting a relationship with Christ. And returners, people are coming back to the faith from maybe being away for a while. So I have the privilege of being one of the starting point leaders. We're having a new group that's going to start in January of 22. So if you feel like you're a seeker, a starter, a returner, I'd encourage you to go to the, uh, the reception desk in the lobby and sign up for Starting Point, and I'll see you in, in January. So the point here is that transformation is important. It's Paul's goal. It's Paul's goal. Kind of. I think they're a means to an end. He says, my goal is that they could be encouraged in heart, united in love. They could have uh, full riches of understanding that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ. So if you boil it all down, Paul is saying this. He's saying, I'm struggling for you so that you could be encouraged. I'm struggling you. I'm praying for you that you could be united with others. I'm struggling. I'm praying for you that you could have understanding. But all these are simply a means to a greater end. 
They're how we accomplish something more important, that they may know God. It's all about Jesus, that they may know God. In 2 Peter 1.3, it says this, his divine power, God's divine power, has given us everything, nothing gets left out, everything we need for life and godliness. His power is given us through our knowledge of him. It's through our knowledge of him. Knowledge of Christ is perhaps one of the most important things that you can focus on. So what does that mean? What does, that, what does it mean to, to have knowledge of him? Well, I think that the, knowing then, as these biblical authors are talking about, is much different than what we often think about when we think about knowing now. And talking about that was author David Grusel in Comet Magazine. He said, most of our academic training in North America is based on an enlightenment model which imagines that verbal or written communication equals knowledge transfer equals education. I don't think that's a good idea. It's not true. Uh, Others have talked about this as being the bucket model. The bucket model. I heard one speaker one time talk about it's like students have a bucket on their head and they go to class and the teacher fills the bucket with information or knowledge which just stays in the bucket until an exam comes and then they just spill out that information (laughs) out of the bucket, the bucket model. Well, Grusel comments on that. He says, the biblical definition of knowing, what we're talking about now in Colossians, is much more personal and embodied than the knowledge transfer model. It involves inhabiting a truth, not just hearing it or writing it down or repeating it. This comes through apprenticeship or mentoring, which allows us to inhabit the truths of our mentor or teacher. I love that idea of habiting a truth. It involves interpersonal or interactive relationship. It's much more tangible. It's much more real than the bucket model. And there's some great examples of this. I have the privilege as a faculty member at UMBC to be involved with training PhD students. And so what do we do? It's not the bucket model. It's an apprenticeship model. So how do you teach someone to do science? The only way that I know how to do that is to actually do science with them. And so we do science together. We talk about experiments. We talk about hypotheses. We analyze the data. We work through these challenges, these ideas, these questions together. And as a result, students eventually learn how to do it. I think another great example is plumbers. Plumbers. How do plumbers learn? Well, I imagine there's some schooling involved, but mostly they learn from on-the-job training. They learn from a master plumber who they apprentice to. They go out and they do jobs and they learn how to do it. Another great and notable example is physicians. Doctors. They learn through apprenticeship. They learn through an internship where they go out and they do medicine. They help people under the guidance of a master physician who's guiding them through the process. So if you think about it, maybe the highest form of knowledge might be a urologist. It's a plumbing doctor, right? So so what's the point? What's the point? The point is, Paul says, look up. He said, I'm struggling for you. I'm praying for you for a bunch of great things, but mostly that you may know Christ. Not just know about him, but actually know know him. This idea of inhabiting this knowledge. And that takes us to our first of Paul's warnings in the passage. We're all prone to deception. The Colossians were as well. So Paul tells them they need to look out. 
Look out. In Colossians 2.4, it says, I tell you this so that no one may deceive you with fine-sounding... Oh, we're one slide to... Oh, we're good. Sorry. Uh, tell you this so no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. So I tell you this. What did he just tell them? He's struggling that they may know Christ. I tell you this so that... No one may deceive you. I think the so that there implies that they hadn't yet stumbled. They hadn't yet gone down the wrong path. He's saying, I want you to be careful. I don't want anyone to deceive you with fine-sounding arguments. We talked about the fact in last uh, chapter 1 that there was a heresy that they were dealing with. The scholars who study these things will tell us that we don't know exactly what that heresy was, what that problem was, what that fine-sounding argument was. But there's a lot of features there that we know. We know that it involved Jewish and Gentile elements. It involved the worship of angels, prohibition on certain types of food. It involved legalism or the idea that you have to do certain things to reach a higher level of spirituality. And a certain degree of mysticism was involved in that you had to know secrets. And as, as knowing these secrets, you could be part of the spiritual elite. So Paul said, be careful. I don't want him to deceive you with these fine-sounding but wrong arguments. So, so I guess that's important to think about, is that they were fine-sounding. They weren't, to the Colossians, they weren't ridiculous-sounding. They weren't silly arguments. They were deceptions that looked a lot like the real thing. They were mostly truth with a little bit of error that rendered them valueless. And I think for me, uh, that got me thinking a lot about counterfeit currency, counterfeit currency. So you may or may not know that the Secret Service protects the president, but they also are in charge of making certain that we don't have a lot of counterfeit currency going around. And so I actually called the Baltimore office of the Secret Service to ask them about this, and I talked to a representative there. And uh, they said there are a ton of security measures built in to a $50 bill. So this is a $50 bill. You see Ulysses S. Grant there. There we go. Borrowed this from Bob Hoffman. Thank you, Bob. Um, it's, it's printed on special paper, right? There's a security thread that goes through there. You can see that with the currency value printed on the thread. There's color shifting ink. Uh, there's microprinting. I didn't know about this before, but if you hold it up to the light, there's actually a watermark of the portrait that's inside the bill itself. A lot of security measures are built in there. And by talking to this representative, I have a lot of inside information now. And armed with all this inside information, I couldn't help myself. That's Ulysses S. Duke. Notice how the portrait just pops right off the page there. Um, so, so what's the point? The point is, I think there's two points here, two very important points. First off, if you walked into a store and handed them the bill with Ulysses S. Duke's photo on it, they would laugh at you right before they called the police and you are arrested, okay? Because that's ridiculous. It's silly. It's obviously a joke, right? It's not a fine-sounding or a good-looking dollar bill, right? The same was true of the heresy that Paul was warning the Colossians about. It didn't look like this. It sounded like something that could be true, but it wasn't. It was mostly truth with a little bit of error that rendered it valueless. Point number one. Point number two. When the Secret Service studies currency, when they want to look for fakes, they don't study the fakes because there is an infinite number of possible mistakes you can make. What does the Secret Service do? They study the real thing. 
They study the real thing. They have an intimate knowledge of what our currency looks like. So when they see a fake, they know what's wrong with it. The only way to do that is to study the real thing. They have an embodied, intrinsic, personal knowledge about our currency. I would suggest to you that that's what we need to do with Christ. We need to have that same level of intimate, inhabiting knowledge of Christ. Not just knowing about him, but knowing him. We need to do the same thing. We need to study the real thing. Our series title is, is All About Jesus. So immediately after this warning, Paul is back to encouragement. He's back to encouragement. In verse 5 he says, For though I am absent from you in body, I am present with you in spirit, and delight to see how orderly you are, and how firm your faith in Christ is. So I'm present with you in spirit. He wasn't there personally. I hadn't met them, but he's there with them in spirit. He says how orderly are some translations out there will say disciplined you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. Paul is encouraging the Colossians, commending them for their good discipline, for their orderliness, for their firm faith. So again, I think this implies that they had not yet stumbled on this error, on this heresy, but he was warning them, be careful, study the real thing. Don't go after this wrong teaching. Immediately after that, he encouraged them again. He says, look up, look up. In verse 6, So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. Overflowing with thankfulness. So I like to do this when I study the word. You can see how I've spatially organized the text. And so I do this a lot, and there's no right or wrong way to do this, but I would encourage you to think about doing this yourself. It's easy to do with a word processor. You can just copy and paste, put in Microsoft Word, and you can play around with the way the words are on the page. So why would you do that? I think it really helps understand what the points are. What are the most prominent or important subjects? What are the modifiers? And what is the idea, the story, the central message that the author's trying to get across? And so from my perspective, when you boil this all down, What Paul is saying here is, so then, live in him. That's the point. That's the point. Look up. Live in him. Now, that sounds great, but what the heck does that mean? What does it mean to live in him? Well, right after that, he explains it. He explains it in a couple different lines. He says, rooted and built up in him. Rooted. When you think about roots, what do you think about? You think about a tree right? A tree is often used as a metaphor in the Bible. One of my favorite passages, Jeremiah 17, 7 and 8, it says, how blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence is in him. How blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence is in him. He will be like a tree planted by the water that sends its own roots out by the stream. It does not fear when heat comes. Its leaves are always green. It has no worries in a year of drought and never fails to bear fruit. Because its roots are in the stream, it doesn't fear when heat comes. It doesn't fear when work gets shut down because of COVID. It doesn't fear when a relationship falls apart. It doesn't fear when there's a diagnosis of cancer. It doesn't fear when bad things happen because its roots are by the stream, drawing nourishment from the stream. Its leaves are always green. It has no worries in a year of drought. It never fails to bear fruit. It's not because it's a great tree. It's because of where it's planted. 
It's because of where it's drawing its nourishment and its sustenance. And you know what's interesting? That's all below the surface. It's probably not obvious why that tree's leaves are always green. But it's because it's where it's drawing its strength. Well, Paul also talks about thankfulness, overflowing with thankfulness. How do we live in him? I would suggest to you that thankfulness and overflowing with thankfulness is a mark of spiritual maturity, Christian spiritual maturity. So I had this discussion with my wife, Juliana, and we were talking about people who live lives overflowing with thankfulness. And it's funny because we both said at the same time, you know, mama. So that's, that's Juliana's mom. So Juliana's mom was born in Korea before the war and lived through the war in Korea and experienced a tremendous number of horrible things, horrible things. But Juliana's mom is a believer, and her faith in Christ is astounding. And what's also astounding for me is how grateful and thankful she is. It effuses from her, and it's not something she has to grit her teeth and try hard to do. It's just who she is. It's just who she is. And that's consistent with Colossians 1. We just read about this. Paul said, I rejoice in what I am suffering. I rejoice in what I'm suffering. Now, let me be clear. He's not rejoicing because of his suffering. No, God's in control. And as a result, Paul knows that no irredeemable harm will befall him. And as a result, God is with him. And God uses that suffering as a means to a greater end, as a means to greater. We might not always understand how that works, but God is in control. Overflowing with thankfulness is a mark of Christian maturity. So, so how do we get there? How do we get to a point where we can be overflowing with thankfulness? Well, I think it's possible to make a decision. Okay, I'm going to be thankful, and that's a good thing. Make a decision. But I think it's possible to go beyond that. I think spiritual transformation means that we actually can become a thankful person. That it's not gritting our teeth and trying hard. It's actually who we are. We're thankful. And we come that way through training. It's through studying the real thing like the Secret Service does. It's through our knowledge of Christ and having that in an embodied and intrinsic and in a personal way. I think going deeper in our knowledge of God is what leads us to be effusing with thankfulness. So I had a, a, a thing happen a number of years ago, um, and I've shared this story up front before, uh, but briefly, I was praying for God uh, to teach me how to bless those who curse me. That's a bad prayer. <laughs> so uh, we were at this ski place, and uh, three different people cursed me, okay? So uh, bad things happened. And I was right up the chairlift. I was gritting my teeth and being angry. And, uh, and, and God said to me, what are you doing? <laughs> and he said, you prayed to um, learn how to bless those who curse you, Mark. And I said, yeah. And he goes, I'm just setting you the homework. <laughs> And I said, I don't like the homework. And he said, now you know how your students feel. Um, So I'm not sure I've learned how to bless those who curse me yet, but it helped me think about being thankful for the homework. Because I realized that without the homework, you can never learn how to do it. Without God sending us things that are challenging, we're never going to learn how to do those things. Paul then moves on to the second warning. He says, look out. Look out. Uh, In verse 8, see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. The definition here of philosophy 
It's the most basic beliefs or concepts or attitudes of an individual or group. The most basic beliefs, concepts, or attitudes of an individual or group. So let's be clear. Paul's not condemning philosophy in general, okay? He's not condemning thinking in general. Thinking is great. Critical thinking is fantastic, and I would encourage you all to do it to the greatest extent you can, okay? He's condemning hollow and deceptive philosophy. He's warning against a specific kind of philosophy. And while we don't struggle with the same hollow and deceptive philosophies the Colossians did, I think Paul's warning to the Colossians is as relevant today as it was when he originally wrote it. We don't struggle with the same things, but we do struggle. But to make my point, I have to begin with a picture. I have to start with a picture. So these are called shepherd tables. And imagine you were shopping for a coffee table for your family room, and you wanted a long and thin table, a narrow table, because that would fit the best into your particular family room. Which table would you choose? The one on the left or the one on the right? If you're a normal human being, you would say the one on the left. The one on the left, because clearly the table on the left is long and thin, and the one on the right looks like it's about square. What if I were to tell you that the tabletop on both tables is exactly literally the same shape. Stare at that. You know, I, I read this in a different book, a uh, book I was reading, and it bugged the snot out of me. I stared at that picture for, I'm not joking, on and off, probably over 30 minutes to an hour, trying to mentally imagine how that table, the shape is clearly not the same. It's obviously wrong. I thought they made a mistake when they printed the book. So I'm not joking. I, 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 I got it. You can find this picture on the internet. I printed it out on a piece of paper. And I took a pair of scissors. Next slide. I took a pair of scissors. And, uh, and I cut out the tabletop. And I taped it onto the other table. And they are literally the exact same shape. Wow is right. So... This is the myth of objectivity. The myth of objectivity. I talk about this with my students. I read an article about this uh, back in 2009, written by a guy named Jonah Lehrer. And, and here's the problem. See, often researchers in labs encounter unexpected results. This happens all the time. And the problem is they automatically assume it's a mistake. They automatically assume it's a mistake. And Jonah Lehrer in Wired Magazine wrote about this. He says, the reason we're so resistant to anomalous information is rooted in the way that the human brain works. Over the past few decades, psychologists have dismantled the myth of objectivity. The fact is, catch this, we carefully edit our reality, searching for evidence that confirms what we already believe. We carefully edit our reality, searching for evidence that confirms what we already believe. The myth of objectivity. Here's the point. You can be absolutely certain that you're right when you're not. Now, another phenomena called confirmation bias says this, the tendency to interpret information in a way that supports what you already believe. People do this all the time. People display confirmation bias when they select information that supports their views, ignoring contrary information, interpreting ambiguous evidence as supporting their existing attitudes. Confirmation bias. We tend to look for and read and think about things we already believe. That's normal. That's what people, that's what human beings do. Now, the crazy part is the effect is strongest for emotionally charged issues and for deeply entrenched beliefs. 
We don't struggle with the same hollow and deceptive philosophy the Colossians did, but we have our own. And it brings us to what I believe to the how and deceptive philosophy that we struggle with today. And that is contempt. Contempt. There's a lot of definitions out there. I define contempt as an attitude toward another that they are worthless or despicable and worthy of scorn. You see, I think that this idea of the myth of objectivity and the confirmation bias are the sparks which have started the fire The contempt is seen as a good thing. In our society today, contempt is seen as a good thing. It's seen as a positive attribute. And if these two phenomena, these psychology phenomena, the sparks that set the fire, the gasoline that stoked the flames is our media. Facebook recently revealed, 2017, they changed over to having reaction emojis five times more value than likes. The Washington Post commented on this. They said Facebook systematically amped up some of the worst of its platform, making it more prominent in users' feeds, spreading to a much wider audience because it increased engagement. When people are angry, they're more engaged. Cable news shows. If you watch cable news shows where the majority of the information is simply opinion, it's often about the other side of the issue. And it's often contempt. Contempt. The idea that the other's Whoever they are, are worthless and depicable of scorn. So pick your topic. Pick your topic. I'm not taking sides on these topics. I'm not that dumb, okay? I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not picking sides. But can we all agree we talk about vaccines, and we talk about masks, and we talk about mandates, and we talk about climate change? I could keep going that there's two sides to these arguments. Can we agree there's two sides? And both sides know that they're right. And both sides think that contempt for the other is the way to go with it. Dallas Wood once said that one of the most difficult things in the world is being around a person who knows that they're right. I'm here to tell you today that contempt is counterfeit money. Contempt is a counterfeit Paul said in Colossians 2.8, he said, See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy that depends on human tradition, contempt, and the basic principle of the world, contempt, rather than on Christ. Sometimes Christians call this righteous anger. It's contempt. I love this. Amy Weisgerber, leader of our children's ministry here at LifePoint, posted this quote. She didn't, I didn't ask her permission to share this, but it was posted publicly by Reggie Joyner at the Orange Conference. Uh, he said, it's never okay to use your theology as an excuse to treat each other wrong. It's never okay. So, if contempt is a counterfeit, what's the real thing? What's our currency? I'd submit to you that it's love. It's love. How do we define love? Well, I love Thomas Aquinas' definition. He said, to love is to will the good of the other. To will the good of the other. Matthew 22, 37 through 40, Jesus talked about this in no ambiguous terms. He said, the love of the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. That's the first and greatest commandment. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And then just to put a nail in it, he said, all of the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Love your neighbor as yourself, even if they don't agree with you. 
Even if they're on the other side of that issue that you're sure you're right about. (laughs) But wait, Mark, wait, wait, wait. Don't I need to stand up for what's right? Don't I need to let people know? Don't I need to post a status update on Facebook that tells the other people that they're wrong? Don't I need to do that? Jesus said, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them too. I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Contempt is a counterfeit. Jesus calls us to a higher standard. He calls us to love. Do you post on Facebook? I'm not saying Facebook's evil, okay? But if someone else posts, you don't have to post on their wall and tell them they're an idiot or tell them how wrong they are. Send them a private message. Think about what is the thing I could do that would will the good of the other. I'm not saying you have to agree with them. I'm saying you have to demonstrate love. Contempt is a counterfeit. Contempt is a counterfeit. So Paul closes the section once more, looking up to Christ. He says, For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And you have been given fullness in Christ, who is the head over every power and authority. Jesus was both fully God and fully man. He was fully God and fully man. He could do a lot of things that I can't do. But it says here, right here, you have been given fullness in Christ. What does that mean? It means that we have in Christ, what we have in Christ is completely adequate. Completely adequate that we don't have spiritual needs outside of him that he doesn't supply. I read the same passage earlier, 2 Peter 1.3. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him. It's all about Jesus. Through our knowledge of him, we are supplied with what we need to do it right, to do it well, to do it the way he wants us to do it. We are supplied. We have power to live the life that he wants us to live. Well, how do we look up? How do we look up? It begins with what we think about. I think it begins with what we think about. A fantastic quote from Tim Keller. This is amazing. He said, your God is what your thoughts go to when nothing else is demanding your attention. Your God is what your thoughts go to when nothing else is demanding your attention. What do you think about when nothing is demanding your attention? What are the tapes that you play in your mind? This is a funny story, true story. Maybe, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago, um, I was going to build a shed. It was an amazing shed. I mean, I built it. It's a pretty cool shed, okay? But for about six months... That's all I thought about was the details in building the shed. Stick built shed, windows, lights, great roof. But that's all I thought about is my shed. And God said, hey, Mark, <laughs> do you think you might be thinking about that shed a little too much? And I was like, oh, yeah, that's a good point, okay? Tim Keller says, your God is what your thoughts go to when nothing's demanding your attention. What do your thoughts go to? Colossians 3, 1 and 2, we're going to hear about Colossians 3 in a couple weeks. I think Michael Palmer is going to talk about this. Amazing passage begins that section. It says, since then you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, see at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. We get to choose 
what we think about when nothing's demanding our attention. We get to pick. You get to pick. So what will you think about? I would encourage you to think about God. What does that mean? That sounds so amorphous. Well, I've had a great experience with this through scripture memorization. Through scripture memorization. I'm going to try to set Mike up here. So memorize Colossians 3, uh, 1 through 3. It's three verses in the next couple weeks. Or you can go back. Colossians 1 has amazing text about Christ. You're not memorizing to impress somebody else. You're not memorizing to, to refute an argument. You're memorizing as a means to an end. The end is that you would know Christ. Let me summarize here. Let me summarize. In this passage, Paul is saying, look out, be careful, and look up. How do we do that? We look up by thinking about and by gaining experience with and growing in our knowledge of Christ. I think we can, one of the ways we can do that is by just choosing to think about God. Choosing to think about God. And, and, and there are many hollow and deceptive philosophies out there. As we get to know Christ better, as we study the real thing, just like the Secret Service does with their currency, as we study the real thing, we'll be able to spot the fakes. Let me pray. Dear God, thank you that you gave us this amazing book of Colossians. And thank you that you make it abundantly clear what we need to do that we need to focus on you, we need to look up, and we need to look out. God, we pray right now that you would help us to do that. We are finite, so finite. Uh, We have so many challenges in our lives, but we know, God, that your divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of you. And so we pray, God, that you would help us to know you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.